Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. It's on page 1082 in the Pew Bible. If you have kids here between the ages of kindergarten and second grade, you can uh, send them off to Children's Church if you wish. We have a children's program that goes concurrent with the sermon. And uh, you can find that through the door over here by the piano. Acts chapter 2. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 on page 1082. Today we begin at verse 12. Well, uh, we are finishing a sermon series. We're finishing a sermon series that we began about six weeks ago. And uh, for those of you just joining us, the sermon series has been entitled Give the Gospel, Overcome the Obstacles that Keep Us Silent. We've been trying to, basically for Lent, we've given up our Christian anonymity. We've decided that we want to be more forthright as Christians and to, to give the gospel, to speak up. We want to be heralds of the resurrection as those who believe in the resurrected Jesus. So we've been thinking about the obstacles that keep us silent. In other words, as Christians, there are times and opportunities to speak up about the gospel of Jesus. But we just find ourselves sometimes frozen and silenced because of certain you know, fears or hurdles or hang-ups that we have about that. And so we've been looking at different uh, obstacles we have, and then each week we've taken one and tried to systematically dismantle it through the Scripture. Well, today I want to talk about sort of a last obstacle to giving the gospel. And it, it's, sort of, it's sort of a basic one. It kind of goes like this. If I give the gospel of Jesus, what happens if there are negative ramifications for me? What happens if I have to pay a price for giving the gospel? What if by speaking up for Jesus and doing, you know, sort of my calling, there's, there's static and pushback that I receive as a result of that? How am I supposed to handle that? And, and, and what am I supposed to do with that kind of uh, experience? <clears throat> What if I lose some friends? You know, I've got these friends. I don't have many friends, Lord. Uh, you know, and I'm amazed the ones I do have. And, and what, what if I were to start talking about my faith? I mean, what, could that turn people off? Um, I have this family, this extended family, and if I start talking about Christ, I mean, it's going to put such a strain on my family relationships. It's already strained enough as it is sometimes. Uh, or, or maybe you think, look, Lord, do you know my boss? Do you know this person and the things my boss believes and the opinions my boss has? If I were to go to my boss and talk about my faith, I mean, I could lose my job. This is not the kind of economy where you want to be risking losing your job, you know, for the sake of your religion. Um, <clears throat> or maybe you're dating somebody and, and uh, you, you know, you really like this person. It's like it's finally working after so many different tries with different people. Uh, and, and they know that you go to church, but you haven't really laid out your beliefs. You haven't really talked about that in depth. And you're thinking, if I do this, I could lose this one. This one might go off the hook. You know, I, do I, am I really ready to risk losing this person uh, who, who I seem to be clicking with all for the sake of the gospel? What if there are negative ramifications? What if there's a price to pay for giving the gospel? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. And it's a story from the early days of the church in Jerusalem where the apostles gave the gospel and as a result suffered greatly for it. In fact, they suffered in ways that probably, my guess is, likely no one here in this room has ever had to pay a price for the gospel, but they had to pay a price for the gospel. And what we're going to see in this story, and I think the major point of this story, is that nothing can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. That nothing can hinder it. And even when there's pushback and feedback, God will cause His gospel to advance. Therefore, we should be fearless and keep giving the gospel. And, and we should even rejoice when we have to stand up for the gospel when it counts. So that's what this story is. Um, it's an interesting story. It's kind of a crime room drama. Crime room, courtroom drama. Uh, so, you know, if you're kind of one of those people that likes, you know, law and order or shows like that, 
You probably like this story. It's very much kind of a courtroom sort of scene. I, as some of you know, I was just on a jury trial for the last two weeks. So that's why I was out of the pulpit. And so anyway, I, I go to open this text. I'm like, another courtroom scene that I have to deal with here. So I feel like a little bit of an expert now that I've been on a jury. But um, So this story has five elements to it. There's five scenes or five panels. The first one is a crime. The second, you'll see, is an arrest. And then there's the trial. And then there's the sentencing. And then the, the fifth and final panel, which I think is kind of the most interesting, is the apostles' response to all of this persecution and static they receive. So in some ways, that's kind of the takeaway application for us. <clears throat> so we have a crime, an arrest, a trial, a sentencing, and then a response from the apostles. So let's look at each of those five panels of the story. First of all, the crime. What's the crime that started this whole experience. And it appears the crime is that God was blessing the gospel with success. That seems to be the problem. Look at verse 12. It says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. So, uh, the gospel... Is, is going forward. They're giving the gospel and it's bearing fruit. You know, people are... The, the church continues to grow. Notice that they met at Solomon's colonnade. Uh, just a little historical note. In Jerusalem, you had the temple in that day. And the temple was in an enormous courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was like, archaeologists tell us, like 700 feet by 700 feet. Just an enormous, large courtyard. And it was surrounded on the outside by rows of columns or colonnades. And the one on the east was called Solomon's Colonnade. It was a really large place. And that's where the believers had church. So when you came to church today, you came to 578 Main Street, they went to church at Solomon's Colonnade. And that's where they would gather. It was a large area that could really accommodate hundreds and even thousands of people if necessary. And so that's where they met for church. So the church is growing. They're giving the gospel. God is bringing people to faith in Christ. But not only that, notice that there is a a powerful ministry taking place by the apostles. Miracles are taking place through the apostles. And in fact, you remember um, two Sundays ago when Seth was preaching, this is something that the believers had actually prayed for. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 30, just look back there real quick. The apostles are praying to the Lord and they, they asked the Lord, they said, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So they not only asked for fruit for the gospel, they asked for God to do miracles. And God did. Through the apostles, the special servants of God, God was doing, He was healing people. He was, you know, saving people who were oppressed by evil spirits. I mean, it was an amazing ministry. And people were just in awe of it. In fact, I, I love this story that people would put their sick people on the streets on mats in hope that as Peter walked by, his shadow might fall on them. You know, back in those days, they had a sort of a superstition about shadows. They thought the shadow was kind of an extension of the person. So they had this idea, maybe if Peter's shadow even falls on a person, they'll be healed. I mean, that's how incredible this, this whole thing was that was taking place. So, what's the crime? The crime is, apparently, the gospel was working. People were coming to faith. The church was growing. And that ticked off the wrong people. Look at verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So the high priest was mad. The Sadducees were mad. Maybe you're wondering, who are the Sadducees? Little Again, historical note. The Sadducees were a sect within early Judaism that it was a small little group, but they were sort of the ruling aristocracy. Even though they were small, they had all the power. They were the high priests, the chief priests, and then some wealthy landowners. And this small group of people 
was in league with the Roman Empire. That's how they had their power. So the Sadducees were pretty much hated by everyone else in Judah and Jerusalem because they had sold out to the Romans. And as a result, they had authority over Jerusalem and Judea and in religious matters, supposedly over Jews everywhere. Uh, So you can see why they would be threatened by this group of Christians who've now come into their temple, because they controlled the temple, preaching and gathering these huge crowds in their temple. And if you're in charge and you're trying to keep the Romans happy and suddenly there's this large group of people, you're you're starting to think, could this be a revolutionary movement? Could they stage some kind of trouble? If they start causing trouble in our temple, will the Romans be mad at us and take away our power? So suddenly, the, the Sadducees and the high priests feel very threatened politically and religiously by the early church as it continues to grow and grow and gain in popularity. <clears throat> so, they become jealous. And I just think it's something we have to realize as we give the gospel, as we speak up about our faith, that, that even if you give the gospel in a very humble, loving self-effacing way, some people, not everyone, but some people will still feel threatened. You know? Even if you do it like with the softest touch in the world, it will still make some people feel that you're invading them. And the reason why is because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just another idea in the shopping mall of world religions and world views. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just one party at the round table of dialogue. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the light of God. And the light shines in the darkness. And those of us who are in the darkness of sin, we don't like being shined upon. We don't like being told that we're sinners in need of a Savior. I don't like that. And yet the gospel comes and it says we're sinners in need of a Savior. And that just makes us recoil. Uh, Or to use a different metaphor than light, um, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about the fact that Christians and the gospel they bring are, are like an aroma or a fragrance. And Paul says to those who are being saved, we're the fragrance of life. But to those who are perishing, who are resisting the gospel, we're the stench of death. You know, you know, what a great image that is. You know when you walk into a room or, or something comes in a room and there's a, some strong odor that comes in? I mean, odors really affect us. I mean, they're, they're very, they, they move us to action. And if it's a good smell, everyone's like, oh, well, smell that. Oh, I'm so hungry now, you know, or whatever it may be. Um, or, but if it's a smell of like odor, uh, like, like garbage or decay or something like that, you know, oh, get me out. I've got to get out of this room. And we, we act very strongly to odors. In the same way, the gospel is a kind of fragrance that has a, a bifurcated effect. It causes attraction to some and repulsion to others. And, and this is just what happens. We need to understand this. I mean, sometimes you don't even have to really say anything about the gospel. You just have to live a consistent Christian lifestyle. And some people will feel invaded, imposed upon just by being a consistent Christian. I know we're talking about giving the gospel, but if you just live a faithful Christian life. Sometimes that will repel some people. You know, it's like, oh, what would you do this weekend? Oh, man, we were tailgating. I got so trashed and blah, blah, blah. Oh, what would you do this weekend? I um, uh, <clears throat> went to church, <sighs> you know. <laughs> church? Oh, I suppose you think you're better than us. And it's like, I'm just saying I went to church. <laughs> yeah. It's all you have to do is just live a consistent lifestyle that way. Uh, you know, some of you... You tell your families, mom and dad, brothers and sisters, uh, we're getting back involved with our, and you go real generic, spirituality, and uh, we've decided to start attending this this Baptist church uh, in Hingham, you know, and you would think from their reaction that you just told them you were joining a terrorist cell. (laughs) What? Isn't it good I'm going to church? Like, ah, you know, Like, you don't even have to say anything necessarily. You just have to live a consistent witness. And it often has that, not always, but it sometimes has that negative response. We have to understand that that's the nature of the gospel. Even if you speak the gospel humbly, lovingly, gently, 
tactfully, without being an obnoxious, boorish jerk. And even then, it can still bring about a negative reaction because that's what it is. The Gospel is light in the darkness. Listen to what Jesus said. You don't have to turn here, but I'll just read to you from John chapter 15. Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It just goes along with giving the Gospel as followers of Jesus Christ. So don't take it personally. Don't be surprised. This is part of the territory of giving the Gospel is that there are sometimes negative and hostile reactions because it is a light shining in the darkness. So, moving to the next panel. Because of this great crime of Gospel fruitfulness, there is an arrest that's made. That's the next scene. Actually, it's less of an arrest and it's more of like a catch and release. Look at verse uh, 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. So the Sadducees are saying, stop it, but God is saying, keep going. The Sadducees want to say, be quiet, and God says, keep preaching. And so God overrules and sends them out. And this is the message of this story. Nothing can stop the Gospel of Jesus Christ. God is sovereign. Nothing will stop His Gospel. Not even arrest. You know? See, here's the thing. You can arrest a Christian, but you can't arrest the Gospel. You can handcuff and imprison a Christian. And this very day, we have brothers and sisters around the world in some countries who are imprisoned for their faith. You can imprison a Christian. You can't handcuff and imprison the Gospel. You can even kill Christians, but you can never kill the Gospel. Because it is the power of God that's advancing this, not the, the cleverness of Christians or churches. I mean, just the opposite. You know, It's amazing we do get the Gospel out there you know, looking at us. But God's Gospel advances despite all opposition and has continued to advance and will advance till our Lord's return because it is being pushed by the sovereignty and the power of God. And if God wants some of His people in prison, out of prison, He can let them out whenever He so chooses. And we see that here in this story with this miraculous delivery. It happens again in Acts chapter 12 where Peter is released. It happens again in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas are in prison and they're singing and suddenly there's an earthquake and the doors fly open and the chains fall off. God can let anyone go that He wants to let go. God is sovereign and in charge. And, and so we, we shouldn't be discouraged You know, when we get this resistance and this hostility and think that somehow we've done something wrong, you know, the Gospel is going to go forward. Whether we are free or bound, whether we are embraced or ridiculed for our faith, we have to just stay faithful to giving the Gospel. And notice what happens. You've got to love the the rest of the arrest portion. So we're still in the arrest. But it's kind of a Keystone Cops sort of thing. Uh, This is funny, all right? I hope you can see the humor in this next scene, right? So when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders. That was like the Jewish Supreme Court. These were the, all of the Sadducees and all of their power. The, the full assembly of the elders, and they sent to jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what could come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. You know, I, just, I love this whole scene. 
bring forth the prisoners. You know, right. Prisoners, step forth. Prisoners, step forth. You know, looking at the I don't know why first century Jews have English accents in my brain, but (laughs) too much Monty Python at a young age. And so they're looking around. They can't find them. And then it's like, oh, they're in the temple again preaching the gospel. So they they go off. And and notice, I mean, just look how upside down this thing is. They can't even arrest them because they're afraid of what the crowds will do. So it's sort of like, "Uh, would you mind accompanying us to courts if you wouldn't mind so much, sirs? Okay, we'll go with you. You know, it just kind of raises the question, who's in charge? Who's really running the show? You know, the Sanhedrin, with all their power, can't stop God from letting prisoners go and preaching. God is the one who's in charge. So even in the midst of all of this, this uh, uh, persecution and suffering, God is in charge. He's sovereignly working His purposes out through these difficult circumstances. So the apostles are brought in and we come to the third panel. So we've had the crime of gospel fruitfulness, this sort of arrest that merely shows who's in charge. And then we come to the trial. The trial is verses 27 through 32. And notice in this trial it has two parts. Verses 27 to 28 are the accusations made by the Sanhedrin Verses 29 to 32 is the defense made by the apostles. So let's look at, there's two accusations being made. Look at verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. So that's the first charge. You've disobeyed court orders not to teach in the name of Jesus. Uh, This is some kind of contempt of court sort of charge. When did the Sanhedrin give him those orders? Back in chapter 4, if you turn back, verses 17 to 18. This was back when Peter and John, not all of the apostles, but just Peter and John were on trial. This is the second time they're back in court. The first time, it was said in verse 17, to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So now they haul him back in, chapter 5, verse 28. And they said, look, you're disobeying court orders. You're in contempt of court. We told you not to do this. And you did it again. In fact, you're filling all Jerusalem with this teaching. And then here's the second accusation. And you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You keep preaching about the crucifixion of Jesus, so you're trying to blame us for murder. You're accusing the Sanhedrin of some great crime. So so it's a double charge that they're giving to the apostles. And notice that the apostles respond in verses 29 to 32, and Peter speaks, uh, speaks up for them especially, and they answer both of those charges. So here's the answer to the first charge. Look at verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. So the, to the charge of disobeying a court order, they say we're answering to a higher authority. And that's a good thing we've got to remember, brothers and sisters. You've got to understand this. When God commands us to do something specific that the government or anyone else forbids us from doing, or when God forbids us specifically to not do something, and we are commanded by someone specifically to do it, we are obligated as Christians to resist authority and to obey God. We need to honor the government. We need to pray for those in authority. We need to respect authority structures in society as Christians. But when there comes a direct, specific conflict between those two forces, we are called to resist and to follow God's rule regardless of the consequences. Because we obey God rather than men. And here is an instance where there was a very specific command by God, preach the gospel, a very specific command by the authorities, stop preaching the gospel. You have to obey God in those circumstances. It requires courage and sacrifice. But but this is what Christians have done in many countries for many centuries. Not violent, not, not a revolution, but just that quiet resistance that says, I will obey the gospel rather 
than the government when the two come in direct conflict. And then notice how they answer the second charge. The second charge from the Sanhedrin is, you're blaming us for Jesus' death. And I love verse 30. They don't back off at all. The apostles say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. So they're still just (laughs) sticking that in there. But notice what they go on to say. Look at verse 31. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So right here in the middle of their trial, they give the gospel. <laughs> You've got to love it. Like, you know, guys, just lay off, ixnay on the gospel gay for a little bit. Like, <laughs> just make your defense, get out of court. But they're like, no, perfect place to share the gospel. Right here on trial. Look, look, all the gospel elements are there. What's the first part of the gospel? That we are sinners against the holy God. There's a specific sin. You killed Jesus. You murdered Him. And then there's the crucifixion. Jesus died as our Savior on the tree. He's called Savior. There's the resurrection. And then there's the call to repentance and forgiveness. That's the gospel message. And, and I love it. These guys give the gospel even when it's a really probably not a good time. The Apostle Paul says that we need to be ready to speak up for our faith in season and out of season. There are times when it's very much in season to speak the gospel. There's times when it's out of season. Neither of them should hinder us when the opportunity is open for us to speak up about Christ. You know, sometimes it's very in season, right? Uh, maybe you've had a conversation with someone, maybe you're on the phone with a friend, and they're like, could you just explain to me what it exactly it is that you believe I just want to understand this. That's in season. That's like, wow, what an opportunity. Uh, next Sunday, Easter, is very much in season. I'll, I'm going to be preaching next Sunday, uh, God willing, and uh, my plan is to very just simply lay out the gospel that Sunday. It's just going to be a very gospel message. They're going to talk, you know, that little message they say here, I'm just going to preach that message. So that's a very in season time to do it because it's Easter. You know, everyone's open to thinking about these things. But then there are times when it's very much out of season to preach the gospel. Like, oh, I don't know, when you're standing before 71 angry members of the Sanhedrin who want to kill you. You think, maybe this, is, you know, this isn't really a seeker kind of environment. Uh, there's all these people <laughs> who hate me. But they say, you know what, in season or out of season, we've got to preach the gospel, and so they preach it. And, and I love it. They offer forgiveness to the Sanhedrin. <laughs> it's like, Hey, yeah, you guys killed Jesus. But don't worry. If you repent, God will forgive you, Sanhedrin. Like, who's on trial? I'll tell you who's on trial. The reality is that all of us stand on trial before a holy God, before our Creator. We don't like to think of this. This is not comfortable. This is not conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is you're okay, I'm okay, aren't we all wonderful? But the Bible is clear. God made us and we've rebelled against Him. We are, we are stand accused before God and someday we'll have to face God. Uh, as I said earlier, I had the privilege, it really was an amazing privilege of serving on a jury trial for uh, two weeks and um, I'm still amazed they didn't throw me off the jury. You know, it said like Baptist pastor, but they just <laughs> left me on. And, uh, and it was an amazing experience that I'm sure will yield many, many sermon illustrations. But... Um, Probably just my my general impression, I think the thing that struck me most in this trial was here's eight days we're sitting there and the court is in session and there's people talking and all this is going on and in the center of the court sits a defendant. And whether the person is guilty or innocent, you just have to wonder what must it be like to sit there for eight days with people talking about you a judge sitting over you, a jury sitting next to you, staring at you, weighing evidence, holding, in many ways, your fate in their hands. To hear people standing up giving evidence, you know, ballistics and DNA, and, and you know, is that person in the courtroom right now? Yes, he is. Will you point to that person? You know, pointing at the defendant. You know, all of that drama. And to be the defendant just sitting there, taking it all. And I, I was just kind of sobered by that, regardless of whether the person is innocent or guilty. I mean, what a, 
what a, a terrifying experience to just be laid bare and exposed before the world like that. To have yourself be the subject of such a discussion. And as I sat there one day, I don't remember which day it was, I just tried to begin extrapolating what will it be like when we stand before our judge at the end. And on that day when we see God in God's holiness as God is in all of our our garbage, lame, I'm a good person excuses just evaporate. And we realize, you know, I have not really ever loved this God with all my heart. I have broken God's Ten Commandments in a host of ways so many times. I am such a repeat offender. You know, even, and even when I get religious, I do it kind of on my terms rather than God's terms. I do it in ways that's convenient for me. Even my worship is phony baloney. Someday I'm going to stand before that God. And I'm telling you, on that day, you need a good lawyer. And there's only one advocate who can save you on that day. There's only one who died for you. His name is Jesus. You know, I was thinking, they hammered this into us during the trial. In our legal system, you are innocent until proven guilty because we're not omniscient. You know, I wasn't there. I didn't see what happened. So as far as I'm concerned, the defendant is innocent until they can prove him guilty. But then I was thinking, in God's legal system, the principle is exactly reversed. Because God does know everything. And in God's legal system, we all, right now, stand guilty unless Jesus renders us innocent through the cross. We are guilty until rendered innocent through faith in Jesus. And so, the apostles rightly stand before the Sanhedrin and say, repent. And, and I stand before you and I say, there is forgiveness in Christ if you'll repent and turn to Him. You know? And I say that as a defendant myself who is not better than anyone, but who has simply been pardoned by the free grace and mercy of Jesus. This is the Give the Gospel series, but I said this several weeks ago. Could it be that the reason God has you here is because he wants you to receive the gospel, to receive it for yourself. There is a crime. There is an arrest. There is a trial. And then there is a sentencing. This is the fourth scene. Verse 33, When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death told you this is out of season. Not a good time to be sharing the gospel. He just threw gas on the fire. But remember, God is sovereign. Nothing will happen apart from what God wants to happen. Verse 34, A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Uh, Gamaliel, we know about him from the history books. He was a very famous, beloved rabbi among the Jews in his day. In fact, let me read you a a little section from the Mishnah, one of the tractates of the Mishnah. It says, Since Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, this is after he died, since he died, there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. In other words, the, the Jews held him in such high esteem as a model law keeper that when he died, they could say hyperbolically, All reverence for the law has just died. That's how much they respected Gamaliel, as we see in the history books. Gamaliel had a famous disciple. You know what his name was? Paul. Before Paul was a disciple of Jesus, he was a disciple of Gamaliel. So here's Gamaliel, and he speaks up. And look what he says, verse 35. Then he addressed the men of Israel. Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So look, we've had these people rise up before. There was Thutis. We're not quite sure who this guy was, historically speaking. There was Judas the Galilean. We know about him historically. He led a revolt in 7 A.D. So, so these, you know, and there were so many people who led revolts. They, they tried and tried. They, they hated the Romans. This was a very tumultuous time in Jewish history in Israel. 
But anyway, look what his point is. Verse 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail, just like these other guys. But, look at verse 39. Amazing. If it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. I think verse 39 could easily be taken as the summary for the entire story. If you wanted to just kind of pick one line and and say this is the main point of the entire narrative, I think it's verse 39. If this is from God, you can't stop it. You can't fight against it. Your arms are too short to box with God. You can't fight against God. He's going to do what He pleases. And so on the lips of Gamaliel, we see the point of the passage that God's Gospel will advance despite all opposition. And so don't be discouraged if you're resisted, if you're ridiculed, if you're mocked, if you're dumped, if if bad (laughs) vibes come back at you from being a little more forthright about your faith. It's not you, it's the Gospel. It's not you, it's the Gospel. And it just goes with the territory of being a follower and a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So verse 40, just to end the sentencing part, his speech, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, lest you think that they sort of got off with a slap on the wrist, uh, a flogging was a very brutal punishment. Um, it was What it entailed was when someone was flogged is their shirt would be removed so they would just be bare-chested. And they would take um, a, a calf hide whip and they would hit the person 39 times. That was the number. It, it was the proverbial 40 lashes minus one. It says in the Old Testament, never lash someone more than 40 times as a punishment. And so they wanted to make sure they didn't break the law, so they did 39 just to make sure they didn't go over the 40. You know, sort of typical Pharisee kind of stuff. So, so it's the, 30, the famous 40 lashes minus one. You would receive a third of the lashes on your bare chest and then two-thirds of the lashes on your bare back. It was an extremely brutal punishment. Uh, in some extreme cases, people had died from flogging. So this is not, again, a slap on the wrist. This is a, you know, terrible to have that happen to you. Let me ask you, if this whole thing happened to you and to me, what would be our response? How would you and I react to some experience? I mean, can you even imagine what this must have been like? imprisoned, under false charges, let go, brought in, you know, beaten, flogged, publicly humiliated. You know, what would your reaction be? And I think that's what's so amazing in verses 41 and 42, which is the last panel. Look at how the apostles reacted to these experiences. This just blows my mind. I don't think I would have naturally come up with either of these. But look, at there's two responses. Verse 41 is the first response. Verse 42 is the second response. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, what? Rejoicing. What? (laughs) Rejoicing? You know? Like, they're probably still bleeding. I mean, maybe they're being carried home. Could you walk after a beating like that? Would you be in shock? The blood? I mean, just, ah! And they go home rejoicing. You know, someone looks at us the wrong way and we fly into a snit. You know? (laughs) Like, oh, I can't believe she said that. I think, you know, you know what so-and-so said to me? Oh, no, no, you know. Let alone to be imprisoned and beaten, to rejoice for the sake of the gospel. That's amazing. Why did they rejoice? Because, it says, they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace, which is a really funny juxtaposition of words. Worthy of disgrace. Uh, They they felt honored to be dishonored. I mean, it's just kind of a train wreck of ideas. Like, what's wrong with these guys? Are they masochists? Do they have some sort of bizarre self-esteem dysfunction where they think being hurt is good? I mean, what's wrong with them? No, no, they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace. Here's the key. For the name. For the name of Jesus, it was worth it. What an honor to be identified with Jesus so closely that you would even be a partaker of His sufferings, so to speak. 
Look at um, another text. It's put a bookmark here. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, which is on page 1203. 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. This is Peter the Apostle writing some years later after these events. And you wonder if he's reflecting perhaps back on these experiences. I love what he says in 1 Peter 4.12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This is not weird to get pushback for the Gospel. He says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory has been revealed. You're sharing in Christ's sufferings. You will someday share in His glory. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. What an honor it is to bear the name of Christ and to suffer for Him. And then look at the second way they respond. Not only do they respond with rejoicing, which is just amazing, but then even more, verse 42. What do they do? They go out and they keep on preaching. (laughs) What? Are they crazy? Verse 42. Day after day, In the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Every day, everywhere, every way, they keep on preaching. Again, if this was me, I think I could fairly easily come up with some rationalizations as to why I should throttle back the gospel just a little bit. If this was me, I could probably justify easing up on the preaching for a little bit. You know, don't you think you could, you could do that too? You could say things like, um, you know, I'm, I'm still recovering from 39 lashes and uh, I, I need to take care of my health a little bit here. And, you know, they haven't invented antibiotics yet, so maybe I'll just not try to get an infection by going out in public. And, and, and maybe someone else should take over for a little bit because I don't want to, you know, get hurt. I mean, if I die, what good is that for preaching the gospel? I can't speak to anyone if I'm dead, so I might as well stop, you know. Or or maybe you could just say to yourself, clearly the Lord has closed the door. (laughs) Don't we say that as Christians? The Lord has closed the door in Jerusalem. Clearly the Lord doesn't want us to keep preaching here. I mean, if if there ever was a closed door, it's 12 men getting 39 lashes each. Certainly God has told us to stop. Or or maybe you could say, look, uh, this trial, this this was big. This is embarrassing. This is going to hurt our witness. We don't want to damage our witness in the town. What are people who aren't one of us going to think if they see us on trial? They're going to start to think we're just rabble-rousers. So for the sake of our witness, maybe we should just kind of back off the preaching for a little bit. Let's rebuild our credibility in town. Let's do some other things to kind of get people thinking we're cool and good and, and, and friendly. Oh, I know. Let's stand at the gate of Jerusalem with water bottles. And when people come through the gate, we'll hand them a water bottle and, and it'll have a little card on it that says, join us at Solomon's Colonnade for church on Sunday, right? And we'll just hand those out and we'll just kind of be friendly people who are doing good things in the community. Right? I mean, you think of all these kinds of things, but instead, what do they do? They preach the gospel. They just keep going. And what happens as a result? Well, actually, things got a lot worse. <laughs> It got worse. I'm not going to read all the stories, but you can read them for yourself. Acts chapter 7. We have the first martyrdom after Jesus, Stephen. One of the the first seven deacons is martyred. And then a general persecution breaks out against the church. So as a result of them not giving up, there's a persecution that drives Christians out of their homes and businesses and families, and they scatter around the countryside. That's what happens as a result of this. But then what happens as a result of that? The gospel spreads. And it goes to Samaria. And it goes throughout Judea. And it reaches Antioch. And Paul is converted. And the gospel surges outward and and strengthens in power. 
So again, our job is just to be faithful giving the gospel and not to try to read the tea leaves about feedback we're getting. Just be faithful, take it all in stride and keep at it and let God sovereignly use our sufferings and our experiences however he's going to use them. You know, down through the centuries, despots and tyrants and uh, governments have sought to crush the church and crush the gospel of Jesus, and it never works. The more it gets attacked, the more it spreads. Trying to crush the gospel is like trying to destroy a pile of pudding with a mallet. You know, you just whack it and it squirts out everywhere. And now it's a bigger mess than it ever was before. And that's the great irony of God. Just like Jesus went to the cross and there on the cross suffered the greatest injustice that has ever been perpetrated on the face of the earth, the Holy One of God crucified, and yet God used the greatest persecution ever to bring about the greatest salvation in all of human history. This is how God works. And so as we stand here on Palm Sunday, in a sense kind of putting ourselves back in the early church, remembering that first Holy Week, and we think about Jesus going to the cross, we realize that if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we cannot flinch from the cross either. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. find the words to the old rugged cross on the back side of the worship bulletin or you can turn in the hymnal to number 327 would you stand and may our desire be those words of that last verse to the old rugged cross I will ever be true it's shame and reproach gladly bear
church people are just voted in as new members of the last business meeting just coming up here to the front if you're here and sort of line up in the front and after the service uh, if you just come and welcome these new members and shake their hand and welcome them into fellowship here at South Shore Baptist Church we'd appreciate that and uh, again love for you to come tonight six o'clock at First Baptist Church in Weymouth to enjoy us uh, hearing Steve Lawson uh, preaching there now would you join me in prayer Heavenly Father we just thank you again for Christ for the Holy Spirit, for the salvation we have. And we pray that as we go out of these doors, that we would be humble, loving, and yet forthright ambassadors for the gospel, that we might speak this good news regardless of the consequences. Lord, give us courage. Help us to love Jesus more than we love our own lives. We pray this in His name. Amen.